and welcome to the BPL podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here with a special guest today, Beth Armstrong. Beth, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so initially, Beth was scheduled to do a program at Bexley Public Library um, in May, which has been rescheduled for September. Is that right? That's right. So in lieu of, of doing the program this month, we thought we would do a podcast. So Beth has a, a new book out which is titled Voices from the Ape House. So we're going to talk about that and a few other things today. Um, So just a brief bio of Beth. So Beth Armstrong spent much of her life caring for and observing gorillas, first as a keeper and then as head keeper at the Columbus Zoo from 1982 to 1996. She became a passionate proponent and voice for gorillas in the wild and many other species as the first field conservation coordinator at the Columbus and Brevard Zoos, respectively. She continues to promote the role of zoos in supporting fieldwork that actively protects great ape species in the wild. So Beth, can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in nature and sort of your early days as a zookeeper? Well, I think I think with many of my generation, we grew up in the 60s and 70s and um, we were left to our own devices. So we wandered our neighborhoods and, and lucky for me, I grew up in Clintonville which has, you know, Whetstone Park and loads of big old maple and oak trees and uh, very nature-oriented, even the streets themselves. Um, so we wandered. I mean, we walked everywhere or we rode our bikes everywhere. We were expected to. We played outside all the time. So I think initially that's where, it, you know, just the having to walk to school, walking to the pool, walking to the park, That's that was our childhood. And I think that allows for... Uh, an immersion into the sights and sounds of nature. And even in an urban setting, I mean, nature is pretty phenomenal. Bird watching and, you know, listening to the sounds and the smells and the changes of every season. So that's probably where it started. A couple of things Mm -hmm. happened. Um, I found a baby bird that had fallen out of a nest and we, we raised it for a while. Um, We found a baby squirrel. Those kinds of things were always, um, sort of the intensity of taking care of another creature um, really brought something forth in me. Um, And so I I feel very fortunate to have had those events and, and also just to, again, wander and reflect, you know, while I was walking my neighborhood and just thinking about things. Um, Eventually um, I came back to Columbus after I had lived for a while in Florida and started volunteering at the zoo. And at back in the, those times, you just started at the children's zoo barn. And, um, you know, that was a great, I love, I like hard physical labor. I love being around animals. I love to watch animal behaviors. And so eventually that morphed into a seasonal position in uh, the more exotic end of the children's zoo, which had a lot of primates and uh, a lot of other different species. And then that eventually morphed into a job in the ape house. Lucky me um, that I was able to do that. So again, it was circumstance. It was, you show up and, and you can be, you know, I think if you're relied, if people feel like, oh yeah, Beth's going to show up if she said she's going to be there on Sunday as a volunteer, you show up and you work mm-hmm. hard and you do what you're told and you just keep absorbing and absorbing everything that all the more experienced keepers have to, to teach you just through their own actions. And so, um, yeah, eventually I lucked out and I don't know how I did it. Honestly, I feel so fortunate. Um, 
to have worked with gorillas to have landed up in the uh, in the ape house as a as a full time keeper eventually. So it sounds like a very natural progression of things. Yeah. You know? And you didn't know whether or not you were going to get a job at the zoo. I mean, you volunteered because you loved it. And um, it, it, you know, again, you create your own opportunities through hard work. And you don't, and again, you'd have to have a little bit of faith. I mean, I was a little lost. I wasn't sure how am I ever going to get to where I want to be, which is it started to dawn on me after being at the zoo for a while. I really... I don't just want to work with gorillas. It was almost like I needed to work with gorillas. There was such a um, an attraction, a passion there for their um, for who they are as individuals and who they are as a species. So, you know, again, feel incredibly fortunate that I was at the right place at the right time with the right people to work with as well. Absolutely, yeah. And and so, can you talk a little bit about? since you spent so many years working intimately with, with gorillas, um, what were some of the things that surprised you about that? I, you know what, in a weird way, as soon as you asked that, I, the first word that came to mind was forgiving. And I feel like, you know, there were, when I first started in the eighties, um, it was not a great situation for gorillas in captivity. And, you know, the remarkable and the, absolutely stunning thing about the Columbus Zoo was that they really allowed us as keepers to have input and have a major influence on moving forward with how we were going to change things so that the lives of these animals were much more comfortable and much more private, um, that they were given the opportunity to behave as gorillas. But, you know, when you think about what what these animals would have gone through, and again, I I started with gorillas in the early 1980s. So many of these animals had been wild caught. Um, That was what, you know, from the 1950s and 60s, and they were in their 20s and 30s, and had lived a very difficult life. And the fact... um, that they that they would even accept us at times, I was totally stunned by. But eventually, when we made all these changes and we built the, the gorilla habitat, the big cage structure at the zoo, and we shut down their main building to the public and renovated it so it's a very quiet, cozy, um, private space for the gorillas, I think, you know, not so much the surprising thing, but the thing that just I absolutely adored on a daily basis was to watch their interactions with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's like us. It's like watching, you know, there's the ownery little juvenile over there that's always causing trouble, but makes you laugh because they're just such a troublemaker. Or you see a kindness or a gentleness of a mother towards an infant or a goofiness that you see in an adult silverback, you know, 450 pound male, that's so such a dignified regal animal anyway. And then they get goofy and you just feel this sense of an enormous, uh, really an enormous sense of privilege to be able to be behind the scenes to witness their daily lives and how they interacted with one another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you started to touch on this actually in your, in your answer there for the previous question, but so it sounds like, um, you know, in the eighties and nineties in the Columbus zoo, you were sort of empowered to create these, um, spaces for the gorillas, you know, yeah. and sort of, um, create a better quality of life and whatnot. So can, can you sort of elaborate on, you know, since the Columbus zoo is such a renowned zoo, like what, what makes that zoo special and how the 
the program grew and the zoo grew as through the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And and when you say, you know, that that we were able to do that, I want to make very clear, you know, there were three other keepers in that ape house and it was the four of us together. It was the brainstorming. It was the constantly challenging one another and 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 coming together and looking at a variety of, of ideas that we had that were so in some ways so extreme, but so common sense. Um, that's, it's, it was Charlene and Adele and Diana and I, it was the daily, let's brainstorm and figure out a way to solve this so that the lives of the, these animals are, are better and improved. And, but I think what made it happen was that we had a management style and that, that comes straight from Jack Hanna on down where he valued the everyday common sense on the ground experiences of the keepers of the animals. And it wasn't just happening in gorillas. It was happening with cheetahs and bears with Bill Cups's program, Yvonne Klippinger and, and the, uh, the people that worked in birds and their Eagle pro. I mean, it was happening all over the zoo. That was unusual 35 years ago that a director basically kind of just said, all right, have at it. Did we have loads and loads of meetings and overanalyze this stuff? No. Did we have meetings with our curator, Don Winstall, and, and give him pros and cons and negatives and positives of why we wanted to do the things, the pretty massive changes we wanted to make for the gorillas? And Don always weighed in. We always came together and came to a consensus, and he was incredibly supportive of us. So it was just in the air, but I think it was because Jack created this environment that believed so strongly in his keeper staff. And we knew then, 30-some years ago, it was unusual, and even now we'll get together and look at each other and go, wow, how lucky were we <laughs> to have landed yeah. at this zoo <laughs> that listened, that we could say, no, we think we need to build. I mean, when we built... With that new exhibit, the big cage exhibit was built, that was totally against zoo trends at the time in the 82, 84. Um, everybody was saying, no, 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 you can't have cages. You have to have, you know, a big piece of land. And, and we said, no, we think three-dimensional works better for gorillas because it allows them to always feel like they can get out of a tough situation within their troop. So if there's a fight going on in the northeast corner, and it's heading towards them, they can just go up the mesh and even sit on top and kind of watch all the happenings that are happening below them, but they don't have to participate. But if you have a big flat piece of land that doesn't have a whole lot of climbing structures or hills or things like that, um, it doesn't give gorillas options. And we were always thinking, well, how would I feel if I were stuck in this situation with new troop members? How would I get out of a situation that I was either frightened by or I didn't want to partake in. And we, we felt very strongly, but we were pushing against trends back then to build a big cage structure. And our philosophy was this. We wanted to give the gorillas everything they needed to, be, to behave as closely and to mirror as closely their counterparts in the wild. We didn't really care what it looked like. If it worked for gorillas, that was the, that was the key point. And that was the genius of having the type of um, leadership style that Jack had. And it came down through the ranks with Don Winstall, our curator. And 
and um, that they believed in us, that they believed that what we were trying to do was for the best for the animals, to give them a break, to let them live their lives as gorillas. Yeah, wow. It, it seems like even, you know, sort of zooming out um, outside of the zoo world, it sounds like just the perfect way, perfect example of how you should, you know, build an organizational culture yeah. and empower your employees and just kind of trust the people that know what they're doing, know. you know, to, to do their jobs and empower them and whatnot. I know. Micromanaging or yeah. what have you. I mean, let me just, just a couple of quick points, you know, we, because we recognized how privileged we were to work in that environment, but we also knew that our fellow keepers all over the, the North, North American zoos in particular, um, that they understood gorillas too, but they may not have been given a voice as strong as we had the ability to to voice their opinions and and common sense experiences as we were being given so in 87 we decided to start a newsletter for gorillas by for gorilla keepers by gorilla keepers to share their experiences and that way they could give voice to that outside of their zoo and when we went to jack about it he was like yeah great and then three years later and they paid for it they paid for the publishing, the, the mailing, everything. And then three years later, less than three years later, I went to Jack and said, hey, I think we, and, and it, my colleagues and I felt the same way. We, we had all talked about it. And I, and I ran into him. He was walking across zoo grounds back in the day, like in 1989, picking up trash, which is what he would do, talking to people. And I, I said, Jack, I, can I talk to you for a minute? And he's like, yeah, sure. As I'm walking along, trying to keep up with him. And I said, listen, you know, the newsletter we started, Gorilla Gazette, we really think in the APAS that we need to host an international meeting, bringing together all these gorilla keepers and people from the field so that we can meet and talk and learn from one another. And that empowers the other keepers. And he, without missing a beat, went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great idea, Beth. Um, get me a letter just give it, get me something in writing. I'll show it to the board. And then it was done. That was it. Boom. And they, <laughs> and they went out and they got us, um, you know, they got us sponsorship dollars. We weren't even at, we said, Hey, we're going to, we'll do all the legwork on this. Jack went out and talked to people and he got us sponsorship dollars and the community really rallied. And that workshop, which we did in 1990, it was called the gorilla workshop that we did in the summer of 1990 is still going on now. Um, wow. you know, 30 some, or 30 years later, it still happens every two years. So that's the kind of working environment that we worked in. Um, yeah. yes, you had to put the hard work in, but that was the fun stuff. It was like, it was like you had a blank canvas and you had a palette of all these colors and you could just start creating and creating and creating. Um, yeah, what a great, what a great, fun and privileged place we were in back then for sure yeah that's, that's so great to hear and and as you mentioned you know you're improving the animals lives and also you that's know right. you're sort of your your pioneers in the field and you're building you know connections within your community yeah. and your profession just all around yeah and so much fun you know it was yeah. it was challenging and again i go back to what it was like the stars were aligned that the myself and Adele and Charlene and Diana, that we were there together and that made something. And Susan White was there and, and there were, it all came together and we just, again, having that level of freedom to create and, it, and everything always looped back to what do we need to do to make 
the lives of these gorillas reflect who they are, which are gorillas that need to be in big age diversified groups with moms, whether or not they're adoptive moms or adoptive dads or biological moms and dads, raising their babies, you know, disciplining the juveniles in relation to, oh, you're getting a little too rough with that baby. <laughs> you know, that's the job of, an ad- of adult gorillas. And they had not had that for decades. And sure enough, yeah, they delivered. They absolutely, uh, the gorillas on all levels delivered because we gave them the space and the freedom and the privacy to get on with their gorilla lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. Sort of switching gears a bit, you know, yeah. so you, know, you had this experience of, you know, working with, with animals in captivity and, um, you know, improving their lives and their spaces and environments and, you know, you, you also do all this work in, in conservation um, to this day. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, your experience um, working with these animals impacted your your views towards conservation and maybe yeah. talk about your, your current efforts and whatnot? Sure. So again, um, I think sometime in the early, around 93 or something, I was made head keeper of, of the gorillas. Yeah, because we split the department. I think the bonobos became separate and then then it just became gorillas but even prior to that around 1990 I started becoming very interested in um, our zoo starting to support conservation and again we had that blank canvas where if you start we had a conservation committee a management committee that you could approach and say hey I heard about this great project would you be willing to match a grant that they were they gave or they were given and that and that just sort of morphed into more and more con- me supporting or going to the conservation committee and asking them hey what about this what if we do what if we do a little fundraiser to raise money for the Mbele by gorilla study in northern congo um what if we do this for the kibali chimp project in uganda um so again you just sort of created this this um this philosophy and and to and not really protocol but but an approach to how do we support conservation and the thought behind it was hey every zoo on this planet says how important these animals are and that they're the ambassadors to their cousins in the wild and why it's so important to conserve them but i have to tell you in the 80s and the very early 90s other than a handful of zoos that had been doing it for decades wcs which is the Bronx Zoo um, in New York City. You know, some of the European zoos were doing phenomenal conservation work for decades. But in general, zoos at the time were not really supporting field work, meaning the people on the front lines. And our general thought was at Columbus was, um, put your money where your mouth is. If you say conservation is so important, put it out there. Send mm-hmm. if, if you have a project that needs a maintenance man, or a maintenance guy to come over, then support that maintenance person to come over if that's what they want. If you have a project that needs financial support, then that's what you do. And that's how the, the program grew, is that you know we just started giving small grants um, and believing in projects that either there were no other zoos supporting them at the time because there weren't a lot of zoos doing a lot of supportive field work. And that was giving them a leg up to then be able to go to other funding sources to say, hey, Columbus Zoo just gave me $1,000. Would you be willing to match that or whatever? So 
again, it was one of those wonderful times where you could build the program of conservation um, because to me, at its very heart, every zoo has to support field work or they're not, they're not doing their job. And there has to be a complete commitment to it. And so, you know, 30 some years later, it's, it's much more, it's different now. There are a lot of zoos supporting field work. Some zoos have started their own programs and work out of their own zoos. Um, They do it internationally, but they can do it regionally as well. You know, in 1995, we decided the Columbus Zoo came up with the Zoos and Aquariums Committing to Conservation Conference. And the reason why we use committing, because we knew zoos weren't there. And we knew that what we wanted to do was bring together field people who are out there in the front lines doing the hard work of trying to conserve you know, and protect wild places and wild animals, um, bring them in together with zoo people and to be able to say to zoo people, because by then for five years, we'd already been doing a lot of support work, Columbus had been. And so we could say, hey, use our model. It's easy. It's, it's, it does take, you know, the, the part of the zoo that has to commit to it. And again, we were so lucky because Jack believed in it. We had a board of directors that believed in it. We had our conservation committee that believed in it. And it just was, again, a wonderful time to be there because you could create something. And while I was doing that, the overall conservation work, which was all over the world, my colleague Charlene Gendry, who had who was a keeper with me in the Ape House and was hugely instrumental in the changes that we implemented with gorillas, she got together with a group of three docents, volunteers at the zoo, and they created Partners in Conservation, which at that time worked with mountain gorillas, related projects in Rwanda and Democratic Republic of Congo. And, you know, it's almost 30 years later and they're still doing it. And it's one of the premier, you know, projects, holistic projects that came out of Columbus. And I think the cool thing about Columbus is we always looked for projects that were to support that were holistic, that involved community, that involved providing education, uh, providing um, uh, clinics, providing fresh, you know, being able to tap into fresh water. It wasn't just about getting the research data. That's not what we were interested in. We were interested in long-term commitment on the part of our field partners who were in, the, who were in for the long haul in that part of the world and understood and promoted the holistic approach to conservation, that it is you can study all the animals you want in the wild and you can collect all the data you want about them. But if you don't have the local community that is benefiting from those animals being in those communities, then it's not going to work. It's just not. So that was a great thing about Columbus. We created that model of have a holistic uh, philosophy, how you fund and partner with people that think like that, that have a very uh, well-rounded holistic approach to conservation. Wow. Yeah. Just like we mentioned earlier, you know, it sounds like you, you know, you had the the right mindset and then you were mm-hmm. you know, empowered and given the tools to That's do that. Right. And you created the right, you know, yeah. connections and did it the right way. And yeah. now, you know, you're still seeing, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, these things are still going on. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Columbus, I could not be prouder than the fact that Columbus was such a leader and got out in front of this issue starting in the early nineties um, and served as a model for a long time. 
as to this is how you jumpstart something. And that model, the cool thing about Columbus is they were so generous with their funding. And then I went to a small zoo in Florida that really didn't have any funding at the time, but they were very committed to doing conservation. I used the exact same model we used at Columbus. Holistic approach, small grants to build your partnerships over time. Be willing to step up and and speak up for that field person to try and get them the support they needed. Uh, be timely in how you respond to their requests. Get them what they requested. And Brevard, I have to say this, Brevard Zoo in Melbourne, Florida, is probably one of the best medium to small. It's probably more of a medium-sized zoo now that is a leader in how zoos should be in terms of supporting field work. And I'm sure, you know, many zoos uh, across the nation and the world now are thanking you and, and your colleagues at the zoo for setting up those templates. Houston Zoo is another one that's really, that took the whole holistic approach to conservation and they've, they've taken it up a whole nother level. Um, and, and there's many zoos, but those are the ones that I would, you know, that I think, all right, they're doing it and they're doing it for the right reasons, and they are totally committed, and they understand that it is a cultural thing within the zoo, that everybody at the zoo um, has to understand that this is who we are as a zoo. We support work around the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up today, um, so, so you do have a new book out, Voices yep. from the Ape House, so I did want to talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, so is there anything, I, I know probably a lot of what we've talked about already is, is mentioned in the book, but anything you want to say about the book? I, th I think what I want to say is I hope, um, you know, it started out as a series of just a collection of short stories. Um, and then when I approached um, OSU Press, um, Tony, the editor there, said, Beth, would you, be, would you consider doing a memoir, which is not really what I had thought about. Um, and I was, I was just like, hey, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And what ended up happening for me is that it really made me think back on my life and, and talk about the things that had an influence on me as a child. But also, once we get into the gorilla part of the book, I hope, my main hope is that when people read it, that they, that they have that one moment where they go, oh, I did not know. I didn't know they were so gentle with their infants. I didn't know they were such great parents. I didn't know that, you know, again, a 400-some-pound male could be so incredibly sweet with his newborn. And I didn't know that the female got to call all the shots when she <laughs> had her baby. And if, her, and if the silverback, the adult male, wanted to touch the baby and she said, no, I don't think so, that he immediately went, oh, well, all right, I'm not doing that. Um, I, I want them to care about gorillas. I want them um, to see that they are uh, on their very own without any regard to us or any comparisons to us, that they are incredibly unique individual animals and that they can teach us a lot about being a little bit more laid back, being um, uh, good to one another, um, um, I hope that people respect them and, and that they can see that they have a sense of humor and they're goofy sometimes, but they're also, um, they're very regal and dignified and as such should be, should be treated like that. And I just hope that at some point when someone is reading the book, that they just stop for a moment and feel that sense of, 
Oh, wow. No kidding. You know, and they feel something for the gorillas. That's what I want. I want, I want especially, I want people to really understand that Bongo, the male gorilla that I was um, really close to, and even though he passed away ages and ages ago, I, I want people for a moment to understand that his life mattered and that he mattered and what he went through mattered. And, um, and then I hope that maybe they walk away from the book having a greater understanding and empathy and respect for gorillas and also want to do something for gorillas in the wild um, to support the conservation work that's being done with them. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks again, Beth, for joining us. Um, oh, thank you. Podcast. And again, the, the book is called Voices from the Ape House mm-hmm. uh, by Beth Armstrong. So we do have it in the library system. So yeah, so so be sure to either reserve it from a library or purchase it. Um, and I'll, also I'll be doing, because they had to postpone it and fingers crossed that it'll still go on, but the Ohioana Book Festival in on August 29th, I'm one of the authors there. So I'll have a table there as well. And then I'll be coming to do a lecture at your library. In that's right, yeah. September, yeah. Lots to look forward to. Yep. Well, thanks again, Beth, and thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good evening.